This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 120. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, the usual housekeeping stuff. If you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, and you could subscribe to my YouTube page. Just going out and search for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to do all that searching and finding, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you have all of my social media buttons. You can click on those there. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes through there as well. And if you're on my webpage, you can give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook and audiobook, Forgotten Founders in American History. And, of course, that will apply to this podcast, as you're going to see in just a minute, that particular uh, subject. Also, if you're on my webpage, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. And you can send a few bucks my way if you choose to do so. Help keep the lights on. Help keep the podcast going. Anything you send me is greatly appreciated. Also, you can contact me through that page if you have any podcast suggestions. I'd love to hear them. If I don't respond to you, it's not because I don't read them. It's just because uh, I am extremely busy and I don't always have time to get back. But I do appreciate any suggestions that you might throw my way for a potential podcast episode, a topic. Uh, They are welcomed. Also, uh, if you uh, want to uh, leave a review of my new Alexander, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, I'd appreciate it. Just go on out to Amazon.com, leave a review. You can buy that book wherever books are sold now. It is now in all bookstores and available online uh, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, wherever books are sold. And I do appreciate the reviews there. Okay. Also, one other thing, if you like this podcast, please also leave a review on iTunes. Uh, the more reviews, the better. Same thing with books. So all of that helps uh, boost the audience. So that said, let's talk about the, um, the topic of today. And it's actually kind of twofold. One, it's going to look at the founding generation. And um, the other, it's going to apply that to modern politics. So the other day, uh, CNN ran a hit piece on Roy Moore. And it's something that uh, Mike Meharry actually covered in a, in a blog post for the Tenth Amendment Center. But I thought I would talk about it here in terms of historical context and also the uh, problems with modern journalism. Because I I don't think that the authors of this particular hit piece for CNN knew exactly where Roy Moore was getting his information. Which is kind of funny because he gets his information from the founding generation, which is, uh, is, uh, you know, I guess that's extreme. Uh, when you look at the law professor quoted in the article, they say that's that's extreme. And, of course, uh, Mike went down several points. You know, if you want to run a hit piece on someone, just call them names, bring up John C. Calhoun, bring up slavery, whatever the case may be. And, of course, you're going to try to defame them and slander their character to, well, no one will support them. And uh, that's, the, that's the modern playbook for the left. But that said... Um, Let's talk about this issue of Roy Moore. Now, number one, there was a piece out today about Roy Moore. And uh, if you don't know who Roy Moore is, he is uh, running for the U.S. Senate seat vacated by Jeff Sessions in the state of Alabama. And uh, Roy Moore has been in the news a lot in his public career. Uh, he was twice removed from the Alabama Supreme Court as chief justice, even though he was elected by the people of Alabama for that position because the federal government believed that he was violating federal law by insisting that a Ten Commandments, Commandments monument, uh, in one case, be allowed in the Alabama Supreme Court building. They said that violated the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Now, uh, if you look at the issue 
from an originalist perspective, it didn't violate the First Amendment at all. The other time he was removed was because he refused to allow uh, Alabama probate judges to issue same-sex marriage licenses. And he said that also was in clear violation of federal law. That was an unconstitutional edict from a Supreme, from, not from a Supreme Court, from a federal court judge that he didn't have to abide by. And so he said, I'm, I control the probate judges, and therefore uh, you don't have to issue these licenses. And so he eventually was removed for that. Now he's run for governor. He's now running for U.S. Senate. He actually upset the uh, Luther Strange, who was the appointed member of the U.S. Senate from Alabama, in, in a primary vote. So now you've got uh, in this uh, Fox News poll Roy Moore running neck and neck with the Democrat, and they're saying this is shocking because the the idea, of course, is that uh, Roy Moore should be winning by 40 points in the state of Alabama. It's a it's a uh, secure, securely uh, Republican state, and Roy Moore should be running away with it. Well, I think some of that has to do with the fact, and they look at the questions, and I think Roy Moore is still going to win the election, but they look at the questions, and one of the things is, well, how do you view Roy Moore? And um, a lot of people respond, well, he's too extreme. He's too extreme for me. And then you get this piece by CNN. It's no coincidence. This piece comes out on October 12th, so about a week ago. And um, it's written by Andrew Kaczynski and Chris Massey. And I wonder if either one of these individuals know any American history. I mean, I don't have to wonder. I know they don't. But um, this particular piece uh, dredges up a 2010 conference that was uh, hosted by the 10th Amendment Center and um, uh, other individuals. But the 10th Amendment Center was a sponsor in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was what they called the 10th Amendment Summit. And um, Moore signed a document saying he supported nullification of unconstitutional federal law. Now, that is the key to all of this anyways. It's the fact that he it's, it's dealing with unconstitutional federal law, not constitutional federal law. No one's ever said that the general government can't pass constitutional laws. Of course they can. The question is, what happens if the general government exceeds its power and it passes unconstitutional legislation, the Congress passes it, the President signs it, the Supreme Court upholds it, and we don't have to look very far for a law that fits that bill. How about Obamacare? Clearly unconstitutional according to the Tenth Amendment, clearly unconstitutional according to the idea that all the powers of legislative powers of Congress are invested in Article One, Section 8. Uh, and so when you look at Article 1, Section 8, there's nothing in there about health care. And the fact that Obama, for the last four years of administration, essentially had to prop up Obamacare with unconstitutional executive orders because it wasn't going to survive otherwise. So the whole law is unconstitutional, yet supposedly, because the Supreme Court has said it's constitutional, we can't do anything about it anymore. And, of course, in my Hamilton book, I... Um, I talk about that particular decision because it was Hamilton from the grave uh, arguing in the Hilton v. United States case of 1791 that led John Roberts to say that Obamacare was constitutional as a tax. But it's not constitutional, and anyone with half a brain knows that. Uh, in fact, they had to twist and turn to get Roberts to even find a way to call it constitutional. They had to do some serious gymnastics with that 
to find any type of constitutional legitimacy for the law. So people often say, well, that's a slippery slope. No Congress would do that. The Supreme Court would always be the, back, the backstop there. Uh, we, we can't, I mean, because sometimes we use a hypothetical. Well, let's say we've had Congress pass a law that's unconstitutional. President signs it. Supreme Court says it's constitutional. Well, you can't find one of those. Sure you can. It's called Obamacare. Uh, and so you can find it any time. So Roy Moore would sign on to saying, well, that's unconstitutional, and therefore that law should be nullified. Now, the question is, how do you work that mechanic and mechanics of that? Because it is an individual penalty. So you'd have to have unanimous support for not paying the tax or not, uh, not uh, getting involved in the legislation from the states, really to make it to where it doesn't work. I mean, this is a very difficult uh, piece of legislation to essentially nullify. Though uh, some states were kind of doing it by opting out of the exchanges. They just said, we're, like, we're, we're just not going to get involved in that. Uh, and so that was, that was what forced Obama to put this thing on life support through unconstitutional executive orders. But regardless, Moore signs on to this legislation, and, or not to this legislation, to this, to this uh, statement saying that he supports uh, nullification in principle of unconstitutional legislation. And so this little hit piece uh, begins... Uh, by saying the 2010 resolution is Moore's most explicit affirmation of nullification, a theory with a long and controversial history in the United States. In practice, Moore's willingness to defy federal authority has twice caused his removal from the Alabama Supreme Court. In 2003, Moore refused to take down a monument to the Ten Commandments for inside the court building and was stripped of his chief justice position by the Alabama Court of the Judiciary. In 2016, Moore, a hardline opponent of LGBT rights, was suspended by the same panel for ordering state judges to defy the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling legalizing same-sex marriage. He later resigned for, to run for Senate. Uh, now, let, let's get to a couple of things here. First of all, let's deal with that Ten Commandments issue. That is the brainchild of Hugo Black, that uh, somehow the Bill of Rights, meaning the First Amendment in this particular case, applies to the state's through the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Again, a position I take apart line by line in my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America in my chapter on Hugo Black. But uh, this had no bearing. No bearing. The First Amendment had no bearing on the state of Alabama. Now, if the Ten Commandments somehow violated Alabama law or the Alabama Constitution, that would be another issue. But this is a state-building in the state of Alabama, and so therefore federal law really shouldn't apply to that. This is a clear case of federalism, yet we somehow believe the federal government is supreme in everything. And this is where, you know, Tom Paine said uh, in the American crisis that the parliament has said it can legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. Well, is that not the legal definition of slavery? And so, uh, and bind us in all cases whatsoever, actually the language he used, is that not the legal definition of slavery? And so in this case, if the general government can pass clearly unconstitutional legislation and say it's constitutional and you have to follow it, uh, and there's no, there's no uh, recourse to that, well, all that Moore and all these other people are saying at this summit was that, you know what, we're going to support nullification of unconstitutional acts. This is all the Tenth Amendment Center suggests. Never constitutional acts. They, they, don't, they don't question those. It's unconstitutional law. Then, of course, then the, the piece is going to have the obligatory mention of John C. Calhoun uh, because Calhoun is, as Samuel Flagg Bemis famously showed him, is the defender of slavery. So now, without saying slavery, you've just said slavery. And that's, that was the point. Um, and then, of course, you've got to bring up segregation 
Previously resurrected by segregationists during the Civil Rights Movement, nullification has seen another resurgence in conservative thought in recent years, fueled by the so-called Tenther Movement. I want to know, and this is something Kevin Goodsman has often asked, why don't they call somebody a thirder? You know, right? Uh, I, I, I don't support uh, the courting of troops in peacetime. So I'm a thirder. I should be a thirder. Or, uh, you know, I, I'm, 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 uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm against, uh, you know, I, I'm, I support the Ninth Amendment, so now am I a ninther? Or, uh, you know, what about, what about an aether? Uh, because I don't support torture. Now, am I an aether? I mean, what is the stupid designation of a tenther? Uh, it's just so stupid. But this is what we get in, in modern American political discourse. And I think stupid is the nicest word for it. Now, they bring up two constitutional scholars told CNN they considered more support of nullification, quote-unquote, extreme. Extreme. So, here's the issue. When we talk about extreme, and I'm going to bring this back to the founding generation. Is the founding generation somehow extreme? This is a question I often ask in my classes when I go over this material. And I'll, we'll read some of these documents, and I say, is that extreme? Uh, this is not the ramblings or the musings of some militia movement up in Montana somewhere hiding out in the mountains or some group, uh, you know, arming up in the, in the woods of, uh, of West Virginia or something like that. Uh, these are statements made by Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry. So I'm going to read what Roy Moore said, and I'm going to bring it back to historical context because I really don't believe that these writers really knew where this stuff was coming from. And then you have the two dimwit law professors who say this is all extreme. And so here you've got Bruce Ackerman. Don't know who Bruce Ackerman is. He is, well, he's a Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale. So he's at Yale, so obviously he's great. But here we go. This is what he said, quote, Moore's remarks entirely ignore the dramatic expansion of the powers of the national government in the aftermath of the Civil War and express in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments of the Constitution. He added that Moore's Quote, effort to turn back the clock 150 years is very extreme indeed. Yeah, go back 150 years. It's very extreme. Extreme in what way? To turn back the clock 150 years? So are Jefferson and Henry extreme? I guess uh, Ackerman would think so. Probably anything uh, uh, post I'm sorry, pre-1975 is extreme to Ackerman. Uh, or, you know, anything to the left... Of, uh, of any, or I should say anything to the right of Bernie Sanders is probably extreme to Bruce Ackerman. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is what we have. Uh, so, uh, expressed in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Um, not certain what the 13th and 15th Amendments have to do with the expansion of powers of the national government in the aftermath of the Civil War. I mean, the 13th ended slavery, the 15th, unless you're, uh, of course, incarcerated, then you can still be a slave. And the 15th Amendment uh, said that uh, you could not discriminate on the basis of race for voting. Uh, so in that way, I mean, sure, you're saying the states and Oregon can do that, can, can discriminate based on race and voting practices. But so that is, uh, you know, an expansion of power. The 14th Amendment uh, was uh, uh, designed to ensure that blacks, you know, former slaves could serve on juries and own property. Uh, and these were things that were trying to be expressed in civil rights legislation that kept getting knocked down. So uh, certainly there was um, an expansion of, of power at that point, and the radical Republicans wanted to do more, but they were blocked. In fact, the moral of the story after Reconstruction, which I've already done a, a podcast on nullification and Reconstruction, but the moral of the story and all that is that there was a resistance to this. From Republicans themselves, you thought the general government was going too far. 
so there's no effort here to turn back the clock 150 years. I could say that there's an effort to turn back the clock to 1798, or how about to 1788 when the Constitution was going through ratification? Now, was that extreme? I don't think so, but that's, that's what we're looking at here. Now, Stephen Schwinn, who's a professor of law at the John Marshall Law School, said, quote, Moore's positions are well outside the mainstream of constitutional thought and lack any support in the text, rulings, or the history of our Constitution. I certainly consider these positions extreme, especially for a judge or candidate for office. This is just so stupid again. Uh, so anyways, is this is more uh, fostering or advancing a position that's outside the history of our Constitution? No, <laughs> not at all. Uh, in fact, outside, this is how the Constitution was sold to the states over and over again. Again, I've already done a podcast on this, so I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to get back into the mechanics of nullification. But the fact is, uh, when the Constitution was being sold to the states, they were sure the, the wavering delegates who were going to ratify this thing in the ratifying conventions were assured that if the general government pass laws that were unconstitutional, they would be null and void. They wouldn't have to be followed. So is that extreme? This is how the Constitution was sold to the states. Obviously, Steve Schwinn doesn't know that because Steve Schwinn probably doesn't know anything about the history of the Constitution when it comes to the original position. He, I, I would venture a guess. I, I don't know this conclusively, but he probably has not read many of those ratification uh, documents, any of the uh, debates from the ratification conventions. Because if he had, he wouldn't say such a stupid thing. Any support in the text of the document? Um, how about the Tenth Amendment? <laughs> That's part of the document. Or how about the preamble to the Bill of Rights, which says that these amendments are there to prevent misconstruction, which means expansion of powers. Now, I can certainly understand where he says rulings. However... As Mike Meharry pointed out, and as has become clear, the non-commandeering principle is certainly saying that the states don't have to use state resources to enforce federal law. So, in that way, there are rulings in favor of nullification. Another scholar, they say, Dean of Berkeley Law, Edwin Treminsky, said, quote, Federal law is supreme over state law, period! States have no sovereignty to oppose to nullify federal law. This is a theory that has been rejected throughout American history. Is that true? Federal law is supreme over state law, period. Um, not according to the way the Supremacy Clause was sold to the states. This is how stupid these things are. Not according to the way the Supremacy Clause was sold to the states when they said, and if you even read the text of the, of the Supremacy Clause, which uh, I've written about extensively, the text says, that all laws made in pursuance of the Constitution are supreme. All federal law or treaties thereof made in pursuance of the Constitution are supreme. So if the law is not made in pursuance of the Constitution, meaning that if it's an unconstitutional law, it's not supreme. This is just, I mean, these are people, Edwin, Erwin Cheminsky, I'm sorry, Erwin Cheminsky, uh, Chemerinsky, I'm sorry, Chemerinsky, uh, and Steve Schwinn, and uh, here you have Bruce Ackerman, all these three knuckleheads, are saying that uh, the text of the document doesn't support nullification. It does. The ratifying debates don't support nullification. They do. The rulings uh, in the courts don't support it. They do. And they're saying this is extreme. So let's go into what Roy Moore actually said. And they have some quotes from his, from his talk here. They say, Moore also spoke at the event, predicting a dystopian future could await his audience if they did not resist 
the intrusions of the federal government. And so these are quotes from Roy Moore. I say again, we must fight. An appeal to the God of hosts is all that has left us. They tell us that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Would it be next week or the next year? When will it be when we are totally disarmed under UN guard that's stationed at every house now? That's a curious uh, paragraph. And they're saying that Moore said this. And, of course, Moore did say this. But where does that sound? Wait a second here. Let me read you something else. I'm going to read you something. See if these two things sound a lot alike. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed or when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Oh, that sounds familiar. Does that sound the same? Oh, that's because that extreme guy, Patrick Henry, said that. That extremist, Patrick Henry. I mean, that guy that uh, he's so extreme. I mean, who would dare quote a member of the founding generation in a speech? Because that's extreme. My gosh. I mean, this knucklehead Roy Moore would dare to quote a member of the founding generation. So, uh, let, let's go on to, uh, to uh, another quote from Roy Moore. Quote, The war is inevitable, and let it come, he said. This is not necessarily a war to be fought with guns and knives and cannons. This is a war over our Constitution. We're on the right side. We're on the side of our forefathers, and the side that they determined was best for our country. The federal government is simply going their own way. It is in vain to extenuate the matter. So, where does that sound familiar? Oh, wait. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> oh, oh, right here. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat it, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Oh, yes, from the same speech that Patrick Henry gave on March 23rd, 1775. You might recognize the title of it. It's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. So Roy Moore is citing in a couple of lines there that speech. But that's extreme. That's extreme. He also said in this particular uh, speech, he asked the audience, he meaning Roy Moore, asked the audience what they thought of secession before approvingly quoting an 1825 letter from Thomas Jefferson to William Giles, which advocated separation, quote, from our companions only when the sole alternatives left are the dissolution of our union with them or submission to a government without limitation of powers. So here he's citing that radical Thomas Jefferson. Oh, my gosh. Radical Thomas Jefferson. I mean, how dare he cite this guy? That guy is just a radical. That guy is just out of control. He's citing a founding father. But that's extreme. And then he went on to say he did not believe revolution was necessary yet. Quote, this is from Moore. Well, I'll submit to you that the history of the present United States Supreme Court and legislature is a history of repeated injuries and usurpation, he said, refer referencing the language of the Declaration of Independence, all having direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. I'm not arguing for revolution. I'm saying that we... Put up with it as long as we can go. Have we reached that point? Well, maybe not yet. 
because we can still interpose. So here the authors actually recognize that uh, some of that language came from the Declaration. I guess they didn't understand that other language came from Patrick Henry's speech, probably because they'd never even seen it before or read it or had no idea that that was Patrick Henry. But yet, somehow, citing the Declaration is extreme. It's extreme to him and to these uh, constitutional scholars at Yale and John Marshall School of Law and Berkeley. This is an extreme position to take. Citing the Founding Fathers has now become extreme in American history. And this is something that's very perplexing. I think something that's actually deeply troubling when you think about it. Uh, the, the common term the left likes to use, the progressives, is it's disturbing. I'm disturbed. I'm disturbed by this. So I'm going to use their language. This makes me disturbed. So what is that? When did citing the Constitution, citing the original debates about the Constitution, which gave, as Madison said, gave it all its meaning, when did that become extreme? This is a very curious question, I think, one that's deeply troubling for the future of constitutional government. It's why that uh, Tom Woods and Kevin Goodsman said, you know, who killed the Constitution? It's dead. I mean, I agree. Sometimes people ask me when the Constitution died. It's very easy to pinpoint the date. Uh, that would be when the Congress passed the Judiciary Act of 1789, or you might say when Alexander Hamilton was appointed Secretary of Treasury, September 11, 1789. Each one of those dates was highly problematic for the future of the United States Constitution as ratified. Because uh, Hamilton set in motion a series of events that led to implied powers, expansive executive powers, of course, and then his vision for America was then codified by the federal judiciary, and that was a disaster for American constitutionalism. Uh, the Judiciary Act of 1789 allowed for direct appeal of state court decisions to federal courts. And that, that part of the Judiciary Act, as I've already talked about in the podcast, was extremely dangerous for the future because now the state courts apparently became uh, subservient to the federal courts, which is not the case. It's not the way it was designed. Even John Marshall argued that during ratification in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. So this is the issue. This is what we're confronted with now. This is the situation. What are we doing in America when it becomes extreme to actually cite the Constitution in your favor? Is that really extreme? And of course, this piece doesn't really care about that. At the end of the day, this piece is a, is a supreme but stupid hit piece designed to count Roy Moore or to classify Roy Moore as an extremist. Extremist. Someone who is uh, interested only in the quote-unquote, extreme ideas of original intent. Uh, and and you, you look at people, and when you say, you know, this, this idea of original intent is extreme, how, how is original intent extreme if we have a document? I don't care what document it is. It could be a marriage license. And we say this is the original intent of this marriage license. Is that somehow extreme? To say this is what the people that wrote it intended it to do? Well, if we're going to have a document, we haven't, we haven't really changed it. I mean, we've amended it 27 times, so we can look at the amendments of the Constitution and say, okay, we have these amendments and that fundamentally. But included in those amendments is the Tenth Amendment, which was added to the document because there were fears that the general government would abuse its powers. In fact, the Tenth Amendment, as I often point out, which I did in my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, was listed generally first among the proposed 
set of amendments coming out of the states. This is one thing the states were extremely concerned about, was that the general government would abuse its powers. So when Roy Moore stands up and says, look, I support nullification, as he says in that last quote, to save the union. This is the exact same thing Calhoun would say. So let's talk about Calhoun. Calhoun always said he was a unionist. He said that his support for state interposition was a unionist position. Because by doing that, the union would be saved from secession. Because, therefore, the states would not have to secede. As Jefferson said, the states would not have to secede to ensure that the general government abided by its uh, constrained powers. So, secession was a last resort, but interposition actually saved the union. This essentially, I mean, this is what Jefferson and Madison's position was in 1798 when they wrote the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions. I, I guess, uh, you know, these authors don't know anything about that because they didn't bring that up at all. And by the one law professor saying, oh, we're going to turn back the clock 150 years on this one, uh, again, maybe we need to go back 200 years. How about 225 years? That would be, uh, you know, that would be good or so to 1798. Approximately 225 years, a little less. where that's what we should be talking about. And so I find it funny, in a way, that you have hit pieces like this from people that have no conception of history, of where these things come from, and yet they're allowed to write pieces for CNN. This is why CNN is really fake news, because there's no news story here. Roy Moore is simply stating an American position Secession, nullification are American positions. They are a way to deal with unconstitutional acts. And, of course, it was argued that if, a, if the general government passed legislation that was unconstitutional, it would be no law. This is how the proponents of the document, the real, the real Federalists, in many ways, sold the Constitution to the states and how we should interpret the document today. But by doing that, somehow that makes you an extremist. Somehow you're extreme as these little, uh, little nitwit uh, law professors say. And uh, that creates uh, uh, pieces like this where somehow uh, saying that you support the original document makes you a very bad guy in American history. Uh, so uh, Roy Moore has got uh, some political trouble because he's called an extremist and, extremist, and that's what the point of this was. That's what the point of this piece was, to put that seed in the mind of people. This guy's extreme. Uh, this guy does things that are extreme. He, he opposes the general government. <gasps> no way. No way. You can't do that anymore. That's extreme. To say you support the original Constitution is extreme. Uh, that's the unfortunate position we're in in America today. And, and uh, unfortunately, that's, uh, that's something that I have been trying to work against. And I think the Tenth Amendment Center is doing great work and really, and really made a lot of headway. You know, 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, I'd say 15 years ago, there, no one was talking about this. Uh, as I've already talked about on the show, and uh, you know, thank uh, thank goodness that the Tenth Amendment Center in the last ten years has really made headway here. In ten years, they've done a lot of good work, and uh, really putting the, the the bug in people's mind in their ear. You know, this, this planting the seed in their head that hey, this stuff is actually okay. Uh, the, the founding generation thought this stuff was okay. It wasn't just John C. Calhoun and a bunch of segregationists from the 1950s. Uh, this is stuff that people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison thought, and all the original uh, proponents of the Constitution thought this stuff was okay. So, hey, you're okay. You're in good company. And Roy Moore is in good company by suggesting and using Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson uh, as examples in his speech. 
So anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.